I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for April 3rd, 2009, and today we are talking about heresy and heretics. In our last few discussions, uh, we talked about postmodernism and uh, meta narratives, and there was one area that we had talked about off tape, uh, but never uh, really addressed um, while we were recording, and that was something you brought up, and it's the idea of heresy, uh, and so we kind of want to pick that up because even though the big, the this, this idea that you um, uh, brought forth originally is is um, is very interesting, but we kind of want to go. Uh, in a different track with it. So could you uh, kind of bring out that idea of heresy and postmodernism? Sure. So um, one of the sources we were looking at was uh, uh, this this issue of postmodernism, and I was wrong on the source about religion and globalization and read this bit about um, by the sociologist of religion, Peter Berger, who wrote that in the postmodern period when we're faced with different options for different belief systems or different paradigms or different narratives, um, we are all heretics. And he uses the, the word from the Greek root, which he says has to do with choice, basically saying that we all have to choose our own particular religious perspectives. Even if we're choosing the one we're born into, we're still making a choice because we have different options around us. And the interesting thing about that word is that it is this has this negative connotation of somebody who's outside of your religion or against you or rejecting you. But I think he's using the word in a. Uh, well, he's trying to go back yeah. to maybe the original meaning of the word, which is interesting. Right. But as I think, I would think that as a postmodern scholar, he has to be aware that that word has negative connotations uh, for many people, mm-hmm. especially if you have an idea of orthodoxy and this one truth, uh, and that um, in that sense, heresy is not good because it's heresy against the one true truth that you hold. Um, but And so in a way, I think there's an inbuilt criticism there of maybe um, people or, or belief systems that o- only hold up this one truth. Right. Um, but it's interesting too, and it's I think it's very, uh, it resonates just, you know, from seeing magazine articles and like what, Newsweek and that kind of thing, and this whole idea that, you know, in America there are so many different religions and with now uh, so much uh, intermarriage, not only racially but also culturally and ethnically, uh, religiously, so you may have a family that has you know one Christian spouse and one uh, Buddhist spouse or Jewish spouse, and what do you do? Mm-hmm. How do you bring up the kids? Right? <laughs> Maybe fifty, hundred years ago, it wasn't as much of an issue, and there wasn't so much uh, cross pollination, shall we say? Uh, but nowadays, I think it's almost a it's a given. Uh, yeah, it's a yeah. given that yeah. that's going to happen. Uh, so this issue of choice uh, is uh, very uh, important, I think. But that's not what we want to talk about. No. <laughs> we want to go to the, we don't care about the root of the word. We want to talk about, we want to talk about all Buddhist the, heretics. Yeah, heretics, heresy. <laughs> when I think of heresy, I think of like heavy metal. <laughs> I'm you sure always think of heavy yeah, metal. Yeah, <laughs> there's a, some song, I know there's a song by some band that's like, heretic, you know, it's like this perfect heavy theme for heavy sure. metal, right? Yeah. And in that sense, it's often a reaction against Christianity. Right, right. I mean, you don't have to go to the, the like Swedish death metal where people are burning down churches even, right? That like even like um, uh, Black Sabbath uh-huh. 
classic heavy metal band. Yeah. Right? That Bunch of heretics. Idea, yeah, this idea. Although they always wore these regular upside-up crosses that uh-huh. like the guitar player's father made for them or something. <laughs> um, so they weren't actually the Antichrist, but um, right. they had this theme in their music, you know, just the name, Black Sabbath, of something against Christianity. Yeah, and I think that, that's that, that, that whole thing is about being critical of, of orthodoxy or critical of fundamentalism or critical of received religious teachings. And that's part of, I think, what Peter Berger is talking about, just being sort of critical and open to saying, hey, you know, what makes you so sure you're right when mm-hmm. there is this, this, you know, wide array of different perspectives? Um, so. And of course, rebellion. Yeah. We don't even have to get that of deep course. into religion if we're talking <laughs> about heavy metal, right? That it's just rebellion, these people, you know. Um, but uh, getting back to that idea of this kind of heresy against Christianity, mm-hmm. well, Galileo or something too, right? Like that, you know, what to us seems obvious, right. you know, those stupid you know, people that you know declared him a heretic and they couldn't even see the truth that was right before them because it went against their orthodox mm-hmm. conservative religious views or whatever. I think a lot of times we assume heresy is necessarily attached to Christianity right. or um, uh, we, let's even say religions of the book or whatever. Uh, but I think we can see that there is, we can find her- ideas of heresy uh, in Buddhism as well. Yeah. And, and so that's what yeah. we wanted to address today. Definitely. Because I've definitely met a lot of people, you know, not religious specialists or, or even Buddhists who have these ideas about, you know, all Buddhists sort of get along and we're all peaceful, happy people and there's no strife or disagreement and, you know, heretics and Buddhism, that's ridiculous. But it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, what I always tell people is that Buddhism is a is a religion and it's been a religion for two and a half thousand years and over that period of time there's bound to be disagreements. Yes. <laughs> and it's also a religion that includes many religious institutions mm. uh, that developed around a certain set of interpretations of the Buddhist teachings and that they're uh often were in competition or, or um, coexistence at the very least with other schools that had different interpretations. Right. And, you know, when, when you come across a different school, a different interpretation or a different teacher who's doing things that you disagree with or you think are wrong, what, you know, what better word to use than heretic? And hopefully it doesn't <laughs> get to that point, right? I think, and I think very often um, uh, Buddhist schools have been able to coexist uh, even though they may hold different doctrinal interpretations. Um, right. And I think we're going to uh, get into this in our, in our talk about different historical contexts, but I think it's also important to remember that the idea of different Buddhist schools actually means something different in different contexts, mm. right? Like in, in, in Japan, after the Kamakura period, there were definite different Buddhist schools, and they were very sectarian, and they had different ideas about how to be a Buddhist. But that's different from early Indian Buddhism, where there are different teachers and different teachings and different interpretations, but there were no real set schools that had different institutions or different places, and many monks would live in the same place and have different and belong to different schools, quote-unquote, but they right. weren't like... They may have had different ordination lineages, right, but right. They, um, doctrinally they may not have... Um, um, been that different. Yeah, yeah. Well, so where should we start? <clears throat> I was thinking, to me, one of the most basic, um, if I were to, um, were asked, well, what is heresy in Buddhism in a very general sense? Mm-hmm. And uh, my uh, immediate thought is, well, it's, it's um, wrong views. Because mm. uh, one of the first 
um, the first eightfold path, first path, first fold of the eightfold path, sorry, <laughs> is uh, right view. Right. And so that implies wrong view. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that uh, there is, uh, you know, some it's people say hard. we don't believe anything in Buddhism. Yeah. No, that's totally not true. Right? But there are some very, yeah, there are some very, very basic uh, uh, ideas, I think, in Buddhism that are very important. And one of them is impermanence. Mm-hmm. And so one could say, well, so the opposite of that would be permanence or this right. idea that there is something permanently existing. Right. And that could be held up as a wrong view, I think. I, yeah, I think absolutely. Not could be, it is held up as wrong. <laughs> Although, but then you get some texts that say, well, but the only thing permanent is Buddha nature. The only thing permanent is, you know, that there are have been traditionally schools that considered themselves Buddhist mm-hmm. and would declare that there is something permanent that, you know... Uh, but they're a bunch of heretics. No, but they were. <laughs> yeah, who's declaring it, right? Who's deciding? <laughs> That's part of the problem. I, I guess for me, what I'm, what I'm trying to drive at or, or get to here is that is sort of uh, challenge this notion that, that Buddhism is this religion where you don't have to believe in anything mm-hmm. or that sort of anything goes or that... Right, right. You know, any particular viewpoint is fine or, you know, this for, this very sort of relativistic kind of notion in Buddhism. And I think that you can find that in Buddhism. I think you're right that, you know, as you were saying, that there are different schools that said different things about what exactly was a right view or a wrong view. But if you were to look at the Eightfold Path, it's eight right statements. You know, it's right view, right action, right thought, right speech, and so on. So to me, it, that all of those things imply that there are certain things that the Buddha says you should do, and there are certain things the Buddha said you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point of view, I think it's built in that there is this idea that there are certain ways that you should, you know, uh, carry yourself, or certain ways that you should act, or certain beliefs that you should hold. Um, but then, that, what are those beliefs? Right, and the different, and that's why yeah. I think where the, the 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 things come in that the you know the interpretations or the challenges or the heresy or whatever you want to call it comes in because you can interpret those in different ways. You know, any one of the things on the Eightfold Path, mm-hmm. you can interpret them a thousand different ways. Mm-hmm. And even whether the Eightfold Path is important is a whole another question. Yeah. I mean, for Mahayana, <laughs> it's not that important. There would be other ways to um, judge these issues. Uh, another doctrine that we could hold up as um, potentially heretical would be the doctrine of no self or anatman mm. that we've talked about before. And that to declare that there is a self would, could be considered heretical. Mm-hmm. Whole nother can of worms. What do you mean by <laughs> self? From what perspective, right? Um, and there were actually groups, isn't it the Pudgala something or other? There was like one uh, mainstream uh, Nikaya Buddhist group uh, that did declare some kind of personhood. Sure. That, was pretty much, it seems like, looked down on but by other groups. But part of the problem is we don't have any of their original texts. We only have the criticisms by yeah, other schools. Yeah, and it seems to me like a lot of this stuff was trying to figure out. If, what I remember um, when I first started studying, doing the academic study of Buddhism was that a lot of these early doctrinal debates were trying to resolve some other issue. Like if nothing is permanent or if there is no self, how do you reconcile that with um, our continued existence through time, Right. You know, if nothing is permanent, well, then who I am right now is not at all related to who I was 30 seconds ago. And if that's true, then I have no, there's no karmic consequences to my actions. So I think, I feel like a lot of these debates were like, well, if there is karmic 
you know, if there is karmic consequences to my actions and yet nothing is permanent, how do I reconcile those two things? Well, maybe there is a, a, some sort of permanent self, right? And then there's the Abhidharma people who break everything down to the, you know, molecular level of different dharmas with a small d and trying to figure out, you know, are any of them real? And then eventually the Mahayanas come in and say, no, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, you know, and all of these things I think are just different ways of trying to, con- you know, reconcile these larger epistemological or metaphysical questions, which are important questions. I just went off on a tangent there, didn't I? No, that was great. That's exact. I mean, that, and that in a way explains a lot of why there is so much diversity in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Buddha gave a lot of teachings, and then it was wrestling with those teachings and right. grappling with them, which is great. I mean, that to me is fantastic because it wasn't just, well, he said it, so it must be true that these monks, uh, you know, thought about this stuff very deeply and I think very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, there were a lot of, uh, uh, answers or attempts at answering right uh, and different it, strategies and different practices developed and said okay if we're going to figure out what the buddha said maybe we should do this okay that didn't work <laughs> well that did work or you know that worked for me that didn't work for you you're wrong you're right you know and and interpretations ensue and then different schools develop and different lineages and practices and mm-hmm. here we are so one thing that came up in this uh talk too is that uh, we've talked about what people do, right? And then what people think. And so here we're talking very much about doctrine, mm. no self, mm-hmm. impermanence, uh, right? And that these are ideas, maybe beliefs, right? And that um, they may or may not be um, important, right? So orthodoxy is about proper belief, that you believe something. Uh, but it is important to remember that in Buddhism, Practice is also very important. What do people do? That Buddhism offers uh, uh, a lot of uh, practices that may or may not be connected to the beliefs. <laughs> Sometimes they are, right? Mm. Sometimes believing a certain thing may be important. The thought behind why you're doing something may be important. Other times, I think they're not. Like the Vinaya and the, uh, the monastic code, mm-hmm. right? And that a lot of times, uh, people had the same Vinaya, they had the same monastic code, but had extremely different doctrines, but they could probably coexist because they were all doing the same thing. They were living by the same code. Right. But we're writing off writing treatises or, or thinking about different approaches to these different uh, metaphysical or um, doctrinal issues. So that's something just to keep in mind that heresy, I think, we often think of as terms of belief. Yeah. Although it can. I was go just going to say that I think that there's lots of heresy or lots of doc, lots of debate and conflict and discussion about belief, about practice too, but also the relationship between belief and practice. A couple mm-hmm. of things that came up mm-hmm. to me, came up for me while you were talking was uh, the whole sudden versus gradual issue. In mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of early Zen or early Chan in China, there's this whole debate about whether enlightenment is something that you have to work really hard at gradually and gradually over time you become more and more enlightened, I guess is the, the best way of understanding it. Or if enlightenment is this sudden thing that happens, just, you know, this flash of inspiration, all of a sudden you're enlightened, you know, regardless of how much effort you put into it. Um, Which to me seems like both a doctrinal and a a practical issue, right? Like it's, it's a question of like the sort of metaphysics of enlightenment or on the ontology of enlightenment or, you know, like one of those things, like, you know, a doctrinal issue of what is enlightenment and how does it happen? But also a question of, well, what do I do? Do I spend all my time really working diligently hard or is it something that just happens spontaneously and, 
you know, there's little I can do, you know. <laughs> so I think that, that 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 we can talk about differences of of belief and practice, belief or practice, as well as belief and practice. Right, right, right. right. So it's all, um, yeah, it's complex that relationship between uh, belief and practice in Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly a lot of I think. You know, to to swing this little podcast back to Shinshu, which I think is what we're supposed to be talking about. Ultimately, <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of questions about heresy and proper practice and proper belief in yes in Shinshu, and particularly in early Shinshu's relationship to uh, non Shinshu. Well, but also within not even talking about Shinshu, but about uh, the Jodo teachings, the Pure Land teachings, like the the followers of Honen uh, had so many different interpretations. Right, it's 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 Buddhism. It's kind of what Buddhists do best, maybe. Right, is take what Argue. their teacher told them and then interpret it. But if you have multiple disciples, uh, you end up with uh, multiple interpretations, perhaps. Um, so, uh, do we want to move on to um, the Shinshu case then? Yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. I think during um, Shinran's time, there were some uh, important debates going on or, 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 or conflicts, right? And so one of them is the uh, one's calling versus many calling. Do you mean oh. just in terms of... Uh, in terms of the, the Honen's followers. The, the Honen, okay. Yeah. Um, and that uh, there was an issue of, an, in recitation of the Nembutsu, are you supposed to say it once? Is it a sudden kind of thing? Right, That right. the one Nembutsu with the right frame of mind is important? Or are you supposed to say it as many times as possible? And that's 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 always interesting to me too. Too that that question of the right frame of mind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That's part of it too. There's this question of the number of times, but also the question of your sort of mental faculty or your you know your true intention. Isn't that one of the yes? Because the, things the get three into? minds are really important uh, right. from the uh, larger sutra and also the uh, contemplation sutra. There's two different versions, Sanshin and Sanjin. Uh, there's exact same kanji, exact same pronunciation, but then you have to change, put tenten on, on one of the SHs to, to, to make a distinct, distinction between the two. Uh, so yeah, that state of mind is important. Um, and then is it the power of the nembutsu itself? Right? Is it the power of the recitation itself? Uh, that, that ha- you know? So yeah, all kinds of doctrinal things, practice things, all messed up and mixed up together. And that you know results in huge... Uh, interpretation differences in interpretation. So Shinran has uh, a text called Notes on One's Calling and Many Calling, hmm. based on a text called One's Calling, Many Calling by one of, another disciple. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a great text. It's hard to read because it's written in the style of explaining the Chinese. So you read it in English and it looks really kind of redundant. Uh-huh. And it'll say something and he'll say the exact same thing. And you're like, why did he have to say that? It's like, well, the original <laughs> was Kanbun. It was just Chinese. Uh-huh. And then he writes it out in Japanese and explains it in uh, Japanese. So, so reading it in English can be hard if you're not familiar with the, with right. the original text. How would you even translate that? Yeah, you can't. <laughs> you just have to say what he says, right? And, and have an understanding, I think, uh, when you, before you read it or when you read it, as you read it. <laughs> uh, and so one of the great things, though, about uh, Shinran is his answer um, is one's calling, many calling. So at the beginning he says, one's calling is not false. And then goes on, because if you ask, well, which one is it? Is it once or many? Right? And so you read the one's calling is not false and read through his description. And then halfway through, he says, many calling is not false and goes (laughs) through and, you know, explains all this stuff. So in the end, he says, well, they're kind of both right. Right. 
but you have the, with a certain interpretation uh, that the ones calling the the Nembutsu Sid and true Shinjin having you know been been uh, through the other power of Amida Buddha having um, had that awakened in you that that calling of uh, the Nembutsu uh, is very important that single calling of of when Shinjin is truly awakened, but that doesn't mean we stop. That would seem to imply that with that one calling, you shouldn't say it anymore. Right, you're done. Yeah, you don't have to say it, or maybe you shouldn't say it. There were even some who said you shouldn't say it even that once. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the many calling is once one, it's said in that from that uh, attainment or, or having been had Shinjin awakened, then one continues to say it in gratitude. Hmm. Uh, so then the reasons why you're saying it or the quality of the saying it or the quality of your mind or something changes after Shinjin. Hmm. Right? Maybe. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's to me uh, been one of the interesting debates in, in all of this is, you know, are you saying the Nambutsu in order to have Shinjin? Well, no, 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 no. But then if you have Shinjin and you keep saying it, then you're saying it from gratitude. Well, is that different from before you got Shinjin? How do you know you have Shinjin? I mean, mm-hmm. What the hell is Shinjin? Right. And this becomes very intellectual. I think it becomes a very intellectual discussion, doctrinal discussion uh, for ministers mm. and scholars in, you know, uh, within the tradition, which I haven't really engaged in that much. But, um, and so um, if I can, we can come back to this, some other ones too, but uh, this kind of moves us in an interesting direction. That, so there's, there's another word for Shinjin, which is Anjin. Shinjin means mind of entrusting mm. or mind of faith, maybe, or mind of this shin. Uh, Anjin, that jin is the same as shin, it's mind, but an is peaceful mind. So it's, it's a synonym, right? So anjin is the same as shinjin. And so there's this um, later on, several hundred years later, this thing called anjin nondai comes up, and it's these important points of anjin, doctrinal points. So it answers some of those questions and it says, Shinjin Shoin. Shinjin is the true cause of birth in the Pure Land, not Nembutsu. So it's not my saying Nembutsu that's important, it's Shinjin that's important. Hmm. So it's interesting, this is totally faith versus practice, right? Is it my practice of saying the name or is it my uh, state of mind, my belief or my thought or, or whatever? Right, so it's great, huh? So Shinjin Shoin is the first Anjin Nondai point, and the second one is Shomyo Ho On, which is saying the name is said in gratitude. Huh. So that again, yes, we say the name, but the saying the name is said in gratitude. It's not a practice in itself that somehow gets to some spiritual attainment. That Shinjin is what does it. Right. So, and then it goes on and on. Those are the only two I know of the Anjin Nondai. Um, but I want to look into it more because there are actually some really interesting points in there, I think. But it just, we never get to that level of discourse here in America for some reason. Um, well, because we're all stuck on the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not bitter. <laughs> so, the interesting thing now is Anjin is this state of Shinjin, right? This, this proper state, tr- proper Anjin, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's a term called I-Anjin. I-Anjin. I means different from or divergent from. That's heresy in Jodo Shinshu. Mm-hmm. I-Anjin. So it's totally based on these points of uh, Anjin, the Anjin Nondai. Uh, and that is uh, how often 
often is how uh, heresy is determined in Jodo Shinshu, is are you properly sticking to the proper understanding of what Anjin or Shinjin is, or have you diverged from that? So who came up with the proper understanding of Anjin or Shinjin? I think scholars. I mean, you know, from Renyo on. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and actually, if I can go a little bit further, uh, there's a text called Tanisho. And Tanisho, but that's, you know, a Japanese thing. So the ni is actually i. It's the same i hmm. as in ianjin. And this is right after Shinran's time. Right. So already it's, the translation that the um, Shin Buddhism translation series gives is a record in lament of divergences. Mm-hmm. Right? And so those divergences from the true teaching. Right? So already this idea of divergences from the proper understanding is within, within. Shinran's time, if not... I mean, obviously it's coming out of the Honen's disciples, but even within Shinshu there's already issues. Right. And this is a really popular text, yeah, Tani Shou, yeah. because it's short, pithy, right? These short little sections. So you can just read one section in about a minute or less. And so it seems easy to grasp, but it's actually really difficult. There's a lot <laughs> going on here. For um, example? Well, the first 10 sections are, um, as the book has come to us, are sayings that um, uh, you, uh, Yuyen uh-huh. has remembered hearing from Shinran. So they're in Shinran's words as remembered by Yuyen. Uh, and so like one of my favorites is uh, section 5, where he says, As for me, Shinran, I've never said the Nembutsu even once for the repose of my departed father and mother, for all sentient beings without exception have been our parents and brothers and sisters in the course of countless lives and many states of existence. I love that quote. On attaining Buddhahood after this present life, we can save every one of them. Were saying the Nembutsu indeed a good act in which I strove through my own powers, then I might direct the merit thus gained towards saving my father and mother, but that is not the case. So again, is Nembutsu a practice whose power I can somehow direct and harness? Or, you know, many people thought that. And if I could say Nembutsu 5,000 times, then I would somehow be able to transfer that merit to help someone else. Right. uh, Even someone else who'd already passed away. And Shinran's saying no. I don't have the pro- I can't personally generate the proper state of mind in order to, to harness that power. Right, but I, I, the other reason why I love that quote, though, is because the and, and what you're saying about these are short, pithy statements, but that are easy to get, but they're really not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful with this book. Yeah, because he's also. Yeah. I mean, he's also talking about reincarnation. He's talking fundamentally about our interdependence with other beings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's easy to be distracted by this idea that you can't, uh, that I personally can't say the Nembutsu to save my parents, to get sort of stuck on that. But the reason why is because all of these, you know, everybody has been our parents. Everybody has been our yeah, relatives, yeah, yeah. right? Like, which is sort of based on this much deeper uh, understanding of of Buddhist cosmology or whatnot that. You know, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty deep. So, which has nothing to do with heresy, but anyway. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though. I mean, you know, these, we're not only stuck with the issues of 700 years ago or mm. 800 years ago. And so, even right now, I think the issue of reincarnation, the issue of uh, uh, no self, um, is still an important issue. And there are many possible ways of understanding that. And it's very, very difficult to talk about and engage. Uh, we've attempted it before, and I've kind of given up for a while, but and yet still constantly thinking about it, and I think I have new ideas about that. Um, but it's interesting because the about ideas of heresy... About reincarnation? About reincarnation, yeah. 
So the idea is heresy changes all the time too, mm. uh, depending on uh, the social circumstances at right, the time. Right. Well, one really interesting thing about the Tani Show is that uh, at the very end, Renyu wrote something and he says, this sacred writing, the Tani Show, is an important scripture in our tradition. So he's recognizing how important it is. It should not be indiscriminately shown to any who lack past karmic good. So you shouldn't show this to certain people. Certain people <laughs> will misinterpret this work, is what he seems to be saying. Hmm. Fascinating, you know, boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Is it because some people may come up with incorrect interpretations? It may lead them deeper into heresy? Is it because some people may use it against you because it seems to be giving these certain kind of rebellious, heretical to someone else ideas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's very, it's, that's very, it's, it's very, to me, tantric. Ooh. <laughs> because one of the things about tantric texts is that tantric texts are very uh, mysterious, yeah, right? Yeah, the They're, twilight language. Right, and, and the reason that people believe that these texts are so difficult to understand and so secretive and, you know, you're not supposed to know or read these texts unless you've been initiated or gone through certain rituals or whatnot. The reason is because some of the teachings and practices in these texts can be dangerous, mm-hmm. can actually harm you, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. So that Renyo's statement there about the Tani show, I think this is very fascinating. It's very tantric. It's very like... This is important, deep stuff. Yeah. Be careful with it. <laughs> and to go one step further, this Tani show is sometimes referred to as the razor text Ooh. because a razor can be very powerful and can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, be used if used effectively and properly. If used improperly, it can be dangerous to the point of taking your life. Right. Right. And so the Tani show has that kind of reputation uh, within the tradition that is not to be taken lightly. Right. It's a yeah. very, very powerful. Wow. This tiny little book. Huh. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to our brief uh, discussion of heresy and the heretical. And uh, it, as you know, as we were talking, we kind of realized, I think, that this is a very uh, deep and uh, interesting topic. And so, if it has sparked any ideas in any of you too, please feel free to uh, mail in questions or comments, and we may uh, revisit this topic. Thank you.